Hello, everybody, and welcome back to You Can't Win. This is Tom here, and I'm joined by Don, as usual. Today, we're going to be talking about the RCMP, the history of it, uh, the recent shooting that occurred in Nova Scotia, and some of the, uh, the deep, dark secrets that lie beneath the surface. We've got returning guest, Professor Pizzagate. Mike is back, and uh, he's going to be spilling the beans on all this stuff. So uh, I guess we'll start off with the shooting and then dig into the history a little bit and then try to connect some dots with some of the other things we've been discussing over these episodes. Sure. So um, the shooting uh, that occurred in April killed 22 people um, and was perpetrated by a Nova Scotian man named Gabriel Warpman. So almost immediately, uh, there were a number of things that I think struck people as very strange um, about this uh, particular case. You know, Canada is no uh, stranger to mass shootings, and we've had our share of school shootings and other kinds of uh, mass shootings. But um, this this seemed particularly notable, at, not least in part because the perpetrator was driving a perfect replica, essentially, of a, an RCMP cruiser, which seems to have led to all kinds of confusion, probably resulted in the, the death of the uh, female RCMP officer that uh, Wartman killed, and um, ultimately may have resulted in the RCMP having such a confused response to the shooting, especially where they ended up shooting up a nearby fire hall, um, apparently having mistaken each other as the shooter, having been uh, finally notified that the shooter was driving a replica RCMP car. So that was a little bit weird. Um, the RCMP almost immediately clammed up about this whole case. And pretty quickly, uh, the, you know, article that people may have been or may have seen recently, um, indicating that, uh, Wartman, uh, may have been a, an informant or an agent of the RCMP was written by, um, Paul Palango, who's a, a journalist resident in Nova Scotia, who's been investigating RCMP malfeasance for many years. Um, Paul Palango um, picked up on this really quickly and was was on this case and, and discovered all kinds of weird stuff that was going on in the background. Um, so just to reel off a few things here, the Halifax um, Municipal Police uh, were told to stand down and not to intervene in the shooting despite them having um, emergency response teams that would have been appropriate to use. The uh, shooter previously had interactions with the Halifax police where he tried to like shake down homicide detectives at his place of work, which he's a, he's a denturist. So he was like trying to shake down homicide detectives that had parked in his parking lot. Um, he had uh, been reported to the RCMP previously by a um, partner for domestic abuse assault uh, as well as the illegal possession of firearms. And from what anyone can tell, that report was just never followed up on. It was, it was deep six by the RCMP. And they've been covering their asses ever since. Um, Palango recently um, actually obtained uh, a videotape of the shooter picking up uh, $500,000 in cash from a Brinks depot in Halifax. Um, he's alleging that, you know, on the basis of his, uh, RCMP contacts, that this is the preferred method by which the RCMP funds its own agents. Um, so this is where the suggestion that, um, this guy may have been an RCMP agent arises from. 
Um, so this is all pretty weird, pretty disturbing, um, and it's hard to tell what's going on. And I think, you know, we wanted to talk a little bit about the RCMP's history and uh, institutional structure um, just to highlight why pretty much any of the um, conspiracy theories going around about why this this happened or how it happened is actually plausible with regard to the RCMP. The RCMP is a, is a classic example of a weak institution which can be exploited um, by uh, nefarious actors to achieve some of the sort of deep political ends that we've been mentioning in previous episodes. Yeah, that's all very weird. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, you know, I'm, I'm American. You guys are both Canadian, so you're probably more familiar with the RCMP. But uh, I think I can speak for the rest of the American audience that I don't know what that is. That's the Mounties, right? The Royal Canadian That is the Mounties. Mounties. Yeah, so red jackets yeah. and the the big hats sure. and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yep. So, uh in Canada it's it's similar in the United States in that like because these kind of uh institutions developed, uh, maybe it's even a little bit more um I'm not sure the word like eclectic maybe the word is kind of thing like where uh, these these institutions evolved out of colonial institutions explicitly like not even you know it's not some you know it, you don't have to be a left-wing academic to think that kind of thing it's just it's just straightforwardly true that these were uh, all overlapping strange sort of settlements between different police departments and all that kind of thing so there's a national force called RCMP which uh, was basically a colonial force that mostly um, you know was responsible for things like the northwest uh now the prairies in the West and things. Um, and so there's a weird settlement where, you know, Ontario has its own provincial force, the OPP, um, which is just like its own police. They're separate. There's also local police forces in different regions in Toronto and the area and other places. So the Ontario police has its own sort of jurisdiction in things that deal with the province as a whole and also uh, rural policing and things like that. In Quebec, it's the Charité de Quebec is the sort of provincial police force, which does a lot of these things. Um, but the RCMP in other places can actually be, I think Alberta, it's actually the police force for the whole province as well. So it's this weird kind of uh, overlapping, uneven power system where, uh, you know, the RCMP is supposed to deal with a lot of things that like the equivalent of the FBI would kind of thing. Um, mm -hmm. it also deals with, uh, like it deals with things like threats to protest, like movements a lot of the time, um, and international sort of related threats. But it also, we also have uh, CSIS, which is, uh, another, uh, it's, that's our explicit intelligence agency kind of thing. Um, which is, uh, it, it works with, uh, RCMP in theory and it, it, it like creates, uh, that is the one that is explicitly counterintelligence, I guess. Like, it's it's supposed to defend Canada's information and stuff like that. And then we have, like, a CSCC, which is another one, which is just uh, something like that. Canadian Communications Security Agent, uh, whatever, something like that. Anyways, it's... Uh, the idea for that is that it works with the CSIS and all that kind of thing. It's, like, a signals intelligence kind of thing. So we don't have, like, we're not really supposed to have, like... Uh, international spies kind of in the way that other countries do like we don't we're, we're not like exporting 
spies is the idea. We don't have an agency that does foreign intelligence in the same way that other people do um, explicitly. But uh, if you know, look, you look into say um, the recruitment patterns for Syria and stuff. There's lots of strange things where the Canadian intelligence services and agencies and all these have been involved in those things. And uh, I mean, the RCMP. It just it's a bizarre institution, which we'll get into in a lot of ways because uh, there's just constant. Really, if you look into it, there's constant scandals. There's constant strange things that happen um, in re- in almost any area of its policing, similar to like maybe the FBI in its relationship to uh, the left and things. So, yeah. Okay. Yeah, that, that explains things, I guess. I think Canada is also uh, a member of Five Eyes and, and all that. Yeah. So that would be through, uh, I think it's uh, CSIS and the CSEC, I think it's called, the, which they've just, in the last 10, 20 years, poured an enormous amount of money into, like hundreds of millions of dollars, which for Canada, it'd be the equivalent of like building up uh, the NSA out of nothing kind of thing. So Yeah, that's that's kind of what it seems like, like some sort of equivalent to the CIA and NSA with, you know, obviously not exactly parallel, just given yeah. the fact that you know, what yeah. the U.S. does and what Canada does, but essentially. Yeah. It's, al- so. yeah. it's also important to remember, too, that, like, Canada is deeply integrated into the United States security state directly, even. Like, we, uh, you know, our soldiers will go there on training. Uh, our missions are through NATO and stuff, mostly. And we uh, have a certain kind of role within the security framework where we're interested in being, you know, we, we play a leading role in places like... Uh, we did in Afghanistan, we do in Ukraine now. And, um, so yeah, anyways, but just now I think we'll get into maybe more of the RCMP's, uh, actual, um, activities kind of thing. So, yeah. Well, one thing that I, I want to mention just arising from that before we mention, uh, move on is that the RCMP is kind of the odd man out in terms of integration into the U.S. security state now because they have such a poor reputation among U.S. police and intelligence services. And that arises at least in part because um, under Canadian law now, uh, the RCMP must disclose to a defendant all information arising from the investigation into that uh, person. So they have to give the entire file to um, anyone who uh, is charged uh, arising from an RCMP investigation, including whatever contacts they had with American intelligence and so on. So the RCMP recently, I mean, since 2001 anyways, has really been kind of like victimized by the American intelligence agencies who don't trust them at all and will just go and conduct operations on Canadian soil without notifying anyone. And the RCMP is just kind of like left playing catch up. So yeah, it's a very strange situation. Okay. So maybe we can talk a little bit about the, uh, the history of the RCMP. And I think some of the, um, the, the reasons for its, uh, rather, um, violent and scandalous, um, orientation will become clear, but, um, so the RCMP starts life as the Northwest Mounted Police. Um, in 1873, there was the um, Cypress Hills uh, massacre of an Assiniboine uh, camp. Um, and so the uh, Northwest Mounted Police is set up partially in response to this and other incidents 
basically of lawlessness in the Canadian Western provinces and territories. And the Cypress Hills massacre was perpetrated by a sort of mixed group of American and Canadian wolf hunters uh, who had accused this uh, native group of stealing their horses. But this is kind of like the mythical founding um, story of the the RCMP that they made this uh, march west to kind of like secure uh, the western provinces and protect, you know, in particular the the First Nations inhabitants, which is particularly bitter irony of the uh, later history of the RCMP. And they end up being quite oppressive because they're basically responsible for enforcing what they construe to be the legal framework which uh, governs the First Nations um, pretty much everywhere uh, west of Ontario. Um, and in particular, the uh, reservation system, which starts to get set up around this time. Um, so they're, you know, the RCMP is notorious for just like making up laws that First Nations groups would have to follow. And they set up a wholly legal, um, like pass system for reservations to keep people in the reservations and all of these kinds of things. Um, so this is, this is not centrally directed policy. And this is one of the themes that we, um, encounter throughout the history of the RCMP is that it's often the case that Ottawa does not have much control over them. Um, so they uh, respond to the uh, Louis Riel uh, rebellion. I, I don't know. Are Americans familiar with that? I've never heard of that. Nope. I, I, just for our purposes, I mean, this is this is like probably the most significant uprising of um, First Nations and Métis people in Canadian history. Um, and so the RCMP is really on the front lines of, uh, this is, they, they are very much a paramilitary organization. They're equipped to deal with this kind of, um, thing. So they're they're responsible as well for the protection of Western infrastructure projects. And so they, uh, are looking after the building of the Canadian Pacific Railway. Um, and that concern carries right through today. You see them on, um, Western pipeline projects all the time. And they quickly get involved in industrial labor disputes. Even before the Depression, they're doing strike breaking and intelligence gathering on behalf of um, mostly uh, Western firms. And they're not reorganized into the RCMP until 1920. Basically, at that point, they had kind of caused a scandal by crushing the Winnipeg General Strike in the sort of bloody Saturday police riot in 1919. Um, so in response to that, um, the Northwest Mounted Police is rolled into um, the Dominion Police, which is another uh, sort of broadly tasked policing organization uh, at that time. Um, so and what, what time was that about, like the years? Yeah, so um, the Northwest Mounted Police is basically active from 1874 through to 1920. And then the RCMP is the direct successor organization after 1920. So when Don is saying they're explicitly the continuation of colonial organizations, like that's it. They claim direct descent from the Northwest Mounted Police. Uh, okay. There's no, yeah. no bones about that. That's interesting. And, that yeah. that really lines up very much with the American, you know, there wasn't so many many of these like explicitly colonial paramilitary groups that became like official police, you know, institutions and stuff, but there were a lot of just 
more generalized, especially like anti-labor groups that did become part of that security apparatus. The closest equivalent I can think of is actually like the Texas Rangers. Yep. Yeah. They're often compared to the Texas Rangers. Um, And uh, they, they have the same kind of involvement with like auxiliary kind of militias that they'll raise to do strike breaking and stuff throughout that period. Yeah, that's an yeah. interesting uh, phenomenon that was going on. And I, it seems like that was sort of somewhat normalized. Like it it would be crazy if we saw that today, you know, like just some paramilitary group is like, well, now they have badges there. They have the state sanction and their official police now. And you guys just have, you know, obey their authority and all that kind of stuff. Uh, now we sort of have this idea of like the government is like democratic and we have these people that are like public servants almost you know so uh yeah interesting interesting stuff yeah there there was explicit legislation i believe called like the master servant act in the early part of the 20th century in canada that enabled the rcmp to actually like collect workers as though they were truants um if they weren't like showing up for their jobs so yeah this was this was very much about control of labor and stuff like this and it's, it's worth mentioning you know with regard to some of the other themes that we've touched on that you know during this period uh we start to see the western um bootlegging families getting going um and the RCMP are responsible for enforcement of prohibition law as well as prostitution law basically throughout uh western canada and you know there's um, all kinds of uh, weirdness associated with that. Right. If uh, if you guys haven't listened to our Pizzagate is Real number two, I believe, the one that's called uh, Computer Gangster God or something like that, we go into the whole history of where these like blackmail operations that we believe uh, Jeffrey Epstein was in charge of. Uh, and they have their roots in Canadian bootlegging. So uh, if you haven't listened to that, I'd recommend you go check it out. Yep. Yeah. I think that uh, another little thing that's important to realize is that I think in the United States you get this sense that like, okay, from 1776 onwards, there's maybe some coherent national structure there and then kind of expands in sort of a, you know, viral way almost just through the West. And uh, in Canada, it's a little bit different because, uh, you know, it it was very fresh. It was still, still happening in a lot of ways, like just immediately... Uh, like 1867, just a few years before the Northwest police, it was, uh, that's when we confederated as a country. And that was just a few provinces really. So it wasn't really until years later that the West was more integrated into the nation, even at like a formal kind of level. Um, it was still, you know, Canada was self-governing by this point, but, uh, a lot of this kind of frontier area, as we were saying, is like not it's it's run you know almost as like company towns and things like that or military outposts or you know just like you know it's not it's not really a formal kind of government structure as you would think today a lot of places because especially if you think of the population like i just looked up just to see and it says that the estimated like the census of 1870 um was that all of canada was about 3.5 million people so it's like very, you're talking about huge amounts of space. Uh, and really, this is this is a point where they're just starting to build railroads So across Canada. So it's like, it's still very slow to get anywhere. It's still very costly. And the population is, you know, it's mostly uh, in that thin strip between 
uh, you know, in Southern Ontario in Quebec and not anywhere else really. So, yeah. Hmm. So who are members of the RCMP? Like what, what sorts of people uh, are participating in that? Like, is there any kind of particular demographic or sort of like political sensibility yeah, there, there absolutely is. Uh, we'll get into this, into why this happened, but because the RCMP has such a focus on contract policing as its sort of cost recovery mechanism, they call it, this is its major profit center, is contracting itself out to local areas to handle all policing duties basically in those areas. And the, the vast majority of those contracts are out west. Um, so the vast majority of RCMP recruits are people from small town uh, Western provinces and are going back to police other Western small towns. Now that's contrasted with kind of a bureaucratic, um, elite, if you want, or, or upper crust in Ottawa, which is, um, almost exclusively, uh, bilingual, you know, Quebecois or, um, of, uh, New Brunswick, uh, extraction. And has a very different organizational outlook from kind of the rank and file uh, contract police. Yeah, so um, if we uh, carry on with this uh, story from uh, the 1920s, the, the 20s is also when we start to see the really systematic implementation of uh, basically the various kinds of, um, genocidal programs that the Canadian state engaged in with respect to its, um, First Nations. Um, so in particular, the RCMP is charged with, uh, enforcing the residential school system. So the residential school system is what the man who is, uh, largely responsible for inaugurating it, uh, Dump Duncan Campbell Scott, uh, saw as the solution to the Indian question, he called it, or Indian problem. Um, he's quoted as saying, I want to get rid of the Indian problem. Our objective is to continue until there is not a single Indian in Canada that has not been absorbed into the body politic and there is no Indian question. So that was the explicit intent of, of uh, the residential school system. Um, and the RCMP is on the front lines of actually taking the children and putting them in the schools. That would not have happened without them. Um, it's also worth mentioning that the RCMP is kind of the mailed fist of the state when it comes to settling the Inuit uh, in the north. Um, the Inuit, of course, were not a settled people. They did not get settled into towns um, by their own volition, but... RCMP rounded up their kids and told them that if they wanted to see their kids again, they would have to go live in town. So um, these are the kinds of activities that we should have in the in the backs of our minds when we're thinking about the, the role of the RCMP in, in Canada, I think. And they continue with their strike-breaking and uh, anti-labor activities um, throughout the interwar period uh, in the Depression. And there's an increased uh, wartime and interwar emphasis on security, uh, on the internal security of the state. Um, and so the RCMP Security Service uh, is founded in 1939 and is um, badly embarrassed uh, not too long thereafter by the uh, Igor Guzenko defection. So Guzenko was a Russian uh, embassy uh, staffer uh, who defected and revealed the presence of an enormous 
Soviet uh, intelligence gathering network within uh, Canada. Um, and the RCMP notoriously just like didn't, didn't believe him when he came to defect and they, <laughs> they just told him to go away. So, uh, it wasn't, um, until later when, um, the British and American intelligence services got involved that they realized this guy was serious and that they had not been doing a very good job of, um, keeping, uh, Russian agents, um, from infiltrating Canada. When did that happen? So that was in 45, um, and a lot of people actually point to that as kind of like the inauguration of the Cold War in the public consciousness, because that's when it becomes clear um, to the public, uh, as this is being reported on, that, yeah, indeed, the Soviets are um, conducting intelligence operations in the West, and um, so this is kind of like the the origin for some people of the cold war uh, paranoia of the the 50s and in that in that period the RCMP is deeply involved in cold war anti-communist activities um notoriously uh they are largely responsible for the fruit machine tests yeah i was uh, just about to bring that up yeah yeah so <laughs> Um, one of the ideas of the, the anti-communist right in the fifties is that, you know, homosexuals are uniquely, uh, risky, um, with regards to being compromised by communist intelligence agencies. And so they have to be rooted out. And so the RCMP goes and conducts basically a whole bunch of tests where they show male public service employees, military officials, and so on, um, homosexual pornography, and then they have this kind of weird get up to measure what's going on with their junk. <laughs> that was <laughs> that was the test. Um, so that was that was kind of what they were up to in the immediate uh, post war period. Okay. So it's a living, yeah. I guess. <laughs> yeah. Um, and it just it just keeps going, you know, with with those kinds of uh, scandals. They're they're often involved in that kind of stuff. Um, you know, it's not not too long that they're in hot water again. Um, we should mention uh, before we move on to um, the FLQ uh, stuff, the Glasgow Commission on Government Organization uh, under Diefenbaker, um, which was kind of an imitation of the Hoover Commissions uh, after the war in the States. And the Hoover Commissions are the ones where they just basically go talk to industrial experts and say, what should the government do? And no surprise, the industrial experts come back and say, privatize everything. Don't compete yeah. with us, right? Sure. So uh, the the Glasgow Commission um, is the kind of Canadian equivalent about 10 years later, which we just, we do what the States does 10 years later in, in general. Um, and they recommend that all kinds of government functions be privatized. Um, interestingly, they're, they're concerned to centralize the RCMP. They think the RCMP is too decentralized, too inefficient. Um, the business logic of the 80s runs the other way, and uh, there's eventually a renewed emphasis on decentralization. But this is kind of like the origin of the emphasis on cost recovery. And this is where like Canadian government agencies start to get like really fixated on their business cases and this kind of stuff. And this this leads ultimately, I think, to the RCMP fixation with contract policing, um, which comes at the detriment of their federal policing duties. But so that's kind of the story through the 50s and 60s. 
as we go into the 60s, we start to see increased Quebecois uh, nationalist activity. Um, Don, do you want to talk a little bit about the FLQ in the in the 70s or in the 60s and 70s leading up to the uh, October crisis? Uh, yeah, so the FLQ is the Front de Libération uh, du Quebec, I guess it is. Is that it? I yeah. So in the post-war period in Quebec, it, Quebec saw itself as very backwards as a place. And it had been uh, under more conservative sort of centrist sort of, con- you know, right wing kind of government for a long time. And it had this sort of soft nationalist kind of thing to it for a while. Then what happened was, you know, and in that, sorry, in that situation, a lot of the control was with the Catholic Church in a very traditionalist kind of mode. The post-war sort of boom and decolonization sentiment around the world, uh, Quebec and social democratic kind of urge, Quebec really, really bought into that. And at first under the liberals, there was sort of this uh, wave of, they called it like the quiet revolution, where the church receded in a lot of public uh, um, functions. The church in Quebec basically controlled the schools. And um, so there were changes to how that worked and uh, changes to how, you know, the health system and things like that. But the main thing was uh, it would do things like they nationalized all the power companies and built Hydro-Quebec. And uh, that was sort of a landmark kind of national development program thing saying, you know, when they nationalized uh, Hydro-Quebec, they had this idea of we are now like masters in our own house. Um, And so during this kind of ferment of decolonization talk, uh, people kind of got, well, I I would say got carried away a bit. (laughs) I don't know, like kind of thing, like where... Uh, A lot of people in Quebec started to see direct parallels with, say, you know, on the left, especially with, like, say, Vietnam fighting for independence or stuff like that. You know, like, uh, they they saw themselves as part of this wave of independence movements and uh, self-determination movements. And that was first channeled into a more moderate politics and then started to sort of, those political groups started to sort of merge towards a sort of new consensus around social democracy or the left in general and independence or renegotiation of confederation in Quebec. Um, so I think I think you kind of need that little bit of that background to get the sense of the fact that the FLQ thought of itself as a radical nationalist army that was going to force the federal government into negotiations for basically surrender so that there would be an independence movement within Quebec, kind of shock people into showing how powerful the Canadian state was and how little it cared about Quebec and stuff. And um, the police involvement in that was uh, the prime minister at the time, Trudeau, uh, through order and council, I guess, uh, passed the War Measures Act and uh, imposed you know, they, they, they arrested hundreds of people, basically. Um, I mean, it was a, these FLQ groups were small groups. They were just, it was just a, it was not like a mass movement. It was just a small uh, group that did things like they kidnapped the Minister of Transport. Um, and this was like the sort of landmark event that really galvanized the public um, in, in the October crisis. And so what happened was uh, there's a sense inside Quebec that the government, um, overreacted, that the government was using the crisis as a way of uh, 
blowing it up into a huge thing, arresting a bunch of academics and left-wing activists in Quebec and uh, framing it as, you know, like uh, Trudeau said stuff like, uh, you know, we can't let a parallel power arise in Canada or something like that kind of thing. It's like, it's just really this dramatic language. And now it did culminate in the death of the Minister of Transport, uh, Pierre Laporte. And that ended up being like a, you know, a national scandal in a lot of ways, because it marked a certain kind of turning point in relationship between English Canada and Quebec, uh, because uh, it forced, it, in in some respects, it, it forced things more towards the reformist outlook, but it also created a lot of division between people. Well, you know, just poisoning the debate in some ways. So, yeah. Yeah, and the RCMP, in response to the October crisis of 1970, uh, the RCMP now is is responsible for the internal security of the nation and has its security service. So they kick into high gear in the aftermath of the October crisis. Uh, particularly of concern to them is that 1976 uh, heralds the Montreal Olympics. So they're afraid, the story goes, that the FLQ is going to engage in um, some type of terrorist campaign in the lead-up to the Olympics or, or during the Olympics itself. And the RCMP at this point really views itself as above the law, and this is something that characterizes pretty much all of their activities, frankly. Um, they at that time, were actually not obliged to follow the law during their investigations. And so they didn't. And so they conducted a whole bunch of break and enters. Um, for instance, they uh, broke into, I believe it was uh, the Parti Québécois at the time. I can't, I can't remember. Uh, Don, is it the Parti Québécois or Bloc Québécois at that time? I don't remember. Um, sorry, what else. year? What year? No, so the PQ wasn't formed until later, I don't think. The PQ formed in 1968, so... Okay, so it was it was the I believe the PQ membership list that was stolen. They also uh, engaged in a bunch of other activities, including uh, they thought like the Black Panthers and the FLQ were going to meet in a barn. So they <laughs> they it was very very Canadian. So they burnt the barn down. Uh, you know, and a number of other crimes were committed. Um, and you know, although perhaps not seemingly atrocious in retrospect, they resulted in uh, a government commission called the McDonald Commission, uh, is a commission into certain activities of the RCMP. Uh, and this basically resulted in the calving off of the RCMP security function to CSIS, which we mentioned uh, before. And that occurred in 1984. Um, and this is really kind of the momentous um, neutering, I guess, of the RCMP that results in many of their later problems. So the RCMP is is kind of deeply chastened by this commission and its recommendations and the subsequent uh, formation of CSIS. And they kind of like swear off intelligence gathering entirely to the point where they're not doing criminal intelligence gathering anymore. And that situation actually kind of persists to this day. They also become very shy of uh, intervening in Quebecois politics or uh, being seen to be intervening in Quebecois politics. Um, and because Canadian politics at the highest levels uh, is frequently dominated by 
Quebecois politicians. This has resulted in some like quite incestuous uh, relationships between the RCMP and those politicians, where they each kind of mutually agree not to poke at each other's wrongdoing. Um, um, just to just to jump in quickly, I said that yeah. Pierre, La- Pierre Laporte was the transport minister. He was the deputy premier of Quebec. Sorry, I just I just realized that uh, I screwed up that. So I'll just move on. Right. Okay, so the other thing kind of to mention in this, um, you know, post-1984 period is um, we really start to get, uh, you know, business ideology really taking hold in Canada. Um, you know, uh, the RCMP starts to think of itself almost as a, a crown corporation. Um, you see some of the same problems with uh, the CBC as the CBC focuses on its own kind of cost recovery. Um, so the RCMP... Uh, in particular, gets really enamored with this kind of HR ideology that everyone in the organization should be able to take any position in the organization. So it's like the every Marine a rifleman thing, but like extended to the max. And this doesn't make any sense at all for the RCMP because they're responsible for so many different enforcement functions. So we mentioned a few of these, but the RCMP is responsible for border policing. They're responsible for uh, like national security investigations. They're responsible for protecting VIPs. Um, they're responsible for enforcing federal commercial law, enforcing human trafficking law, all of these kinds of things. And they're not all the same skill set, and they're definitely not the same skill set as, you know, running HR for the RCMP. So you end up with this kind of revolving door in RCMP departments where basically nobody stays at any one position for longer than a year or two. So you have all of these contract policing departments, and the lower mainland in BC is particularly notorious for this, where basically no cop ever gets to know the area. Every, every RCMP officer is there only as, um, and the lower mainland is, is explicitly considered by the RCMP as like kind of like a training zone, right? This is one of the most significant drug and human trafficking centers in the country. This is where Picton, the serial killer, was active for decades under the RCMP nose, uh, the RCMP's noses, um, possibly with RCMP complicity, you know, and you can see how that happens if you don't keep anyone in, any position for longer than a year or two, it allows bad actors very easily to take advantage of the total lack of institutional knowledge um, at any given location. So that that kind of like generalist obsession really really makes the weakens the RCMP beyond beyond the point of even being effective for its uh, from the perspective of the state. Here. I think that yeah, and I mean nowadays the sort of things that it focuses on. I mean, not focuses on, but it's known, it's seen a lot for our things like uh, doing the equivalent of FBI, you know, the sting sort of operations where they, you know, they did this for a while, like where they would try to scoop up people for planning attacks that they kind of, it was very murky about whether or not, how, like at what point, you know, the RCMP kind of got involved and, um, you know, or, you know, they do the thing where it just kind of, it, they they make it sound like they've made a huge case and all that and then you kind of look into it and it just it uh starts to fall apart they also are very involved in uh protest movements in different ways the opp as well i think but like uh you know they'll have uh so we had a number of things 
like uh, the G20 and things in, in Canada where we have like the big protest, um, sort of the big uh, summits and that too sometimes. So uh, famously, they spent something like a billion dollars on the security of the one in Toronto and arrested a large number of people. And um, it was a bit of a joke. But it's funny in the ways that, you know, they come down pretty hard on the those protesters. Like, like a lot of them, you know, like a lot of the people that are more organizers and stuff might end up going to jail for a while. You know, they have things like, uh, I don't know, I always think of this one moment where they were talking, you know, they did a, they had the police, um, you know, testifying about the trial, at a trial about like the protest movements that they infiltrated. And this woman, like the police officer, she's kind of recounting what happened and how she was worried that they were going to attack people, like have a terrorist attack, basically. And uh, the reasoning why was because they said at the meeting, like the organizing meeting, they said, what are we here to plan today? And, uh, or like, what are, what is our goal here? And then one of the guys jokingly said, uh, we're here to kill Whitey. And, uh, the, the police officer testified at the, um, hearing that she believed that that was a legitimate statement that, that he wanted to, he was planning on uh, terrorist attacks to kill white people or something. So that's the that's the level of uh, sophistication I think some of it uh, operates at. So yeah, are they know. doing any of this stuff that the FBI does, where they like will try to find like kids? Like this this is happening especially like with Muslim kids and stuff, and they'll like yeah. try to talk them into like doing some kind of extremist thing, and then get them yeah. some weapons and then arrest them later and be like, yeah, we stopped this massive That's, terrorist yeah. attack that we ourselves organized. I was hinting at that a bit earlier, but I also think that uh, they also did, there's questions around whether or not they were going further than that and actually being involved in, you know, pipelines to other countries and stuff, like actually, uh, you know, either poorly managing it deliberately or looking the other way and stuff for uh, foreign fighters in different places, like just not you know, there's there's probably a combination of just not doing their jobs and not scooping up people who are trying to go to Syria or something for a while. Uh, and that kind of fades over into whether or not they actually were, you know, there are people that, a lot of people on the left believe that they were directly involved in trying to encourage people that were sort of leaning towards violence not to stay in Canada and just leave. So that's, I mean, it's hard to know with that kind of stuff because obviously like anything with Syria or whatever, you're just not going to know. It's like hard to get good information on that. But there is a sense, at least in Canada, that they were either poorly managing in that or actively encouraging that sort of like jihadi kind of stuff. They do uh, a lot of that, though, as Mike kind of said, though, it, uh, it's part of technically cooperation with the United States. Like the United States will demand a bunch of different things. Like uh, the United States will say, okay, well, if we have a border border crossing here, you need to have a facility of this magnitude that can handle, you know, like a few hundred people in prison or something like that, you know, in jail, in holding in case there's like an emergency or something. Like the United States will get quite detailed about the kind of expectations they have for security partners. But as Mike said, that they probably don't, they're not like equal partners at all. Like Canada does not, it, it's more of a, half-assed kind of relationship in a lot of ways where the United States operates with impunity in a lot of respects but then Canada is not like you know we're not we're not uh, like a globe-trotting force kind of thing like we don't 
you know, we don't follow up on crimes as much overseas and stuff as much as the United States does. We're more kind of just a passive recipient of, you know, global trends kind of thing. So, yeah. But yeah, there's lots of, uh, I mean, there was a famous case where uh, in BC, I'm trying to remember the details, but um, there was a couple that was picked up for, you know, they were saying that like, oh, this is like a jihadi plot or whatever. They're going to blow up everyone or something. And then uh, when the the details came out, it just was very, very clear that the people were just mentally troubled. Like it was no, there was no, uh, it just, it, it was just a, and, and that kind of happens, I think more than, you know, where it's just a, it's not, it's not, there's no ideology really at play on some of the, some of these things. Or, you know, there's a famous one where like it was basically kids training with guns out in the forests kind of thing. And then they said it was like a jihadi cell that was going to blow up all the trains and stuff. And I don't know. So the, the Toronto 13 or whatever. Yeah. So, yeah, um, it's hard to tell with some of this stuff, you know, particularly the, the post nine eleven kind of, you know, terror cell whatever cases that we've had you know in, in some cases it does seem like the rcmp is just getting like completely rolled by its informants um and in, yeah. in that case there was there was this guy mubin sheikh who like later kind of he like initially he was the primary informant for the fed's case against these kids who were you know out in the woods training with guns or whatever and then he turned around and kind of was like, no, this, this case is all wrong. Like it's all weak evidence, et cetera. And started selling himself as like a security consultant as like, uh, like consulting on, on Muslim political violence. And so it's <laughs> like, he seemed like a much smoother operator through that entire kind of affair than the, than the RCMP ever did. Um, you know, so it's, it's difficult to tell sometimes like, you know, what, where to put the you know incompetence malice style when you're talking about the the RCMP and you know whether or not sometimes they look dumb because they're just like getting played and you know other times they look dumb because they're hiding things that you know yeah. they were doing but yeah. yeah do you know much about the Vibo Ludwig case yeah so that's definitely worth mentioning um i i don't know a ton about it but uh <laughs> what what we know is enough to convince us that um you know so for instance one of the conspiracy theories about the porta peak shooting uh is that because there was an order in council um passed banning a whole bunch of uh firearms about a week or two after the shooting basically that this was you know a false flag intended to outlaw guns that um, the RCMP in particular is uncomfortable with. And, you know, the reason that that's not entirely implausible is because we know that the RCMP has conducted false flags in the past, and notably in the in the Vivo Ludwig case. So um, uh, Ludwig was a kind of, I, I don't know what his religious leanings were, but they were like, I, I want to say, um intense <laughs> he, he had he, he he was one of these guys who who lived out kind of with his family on the prairie and wanted nothing at all to do with you know modern civilizations trappings was very religiously committed to his particular weird vision and was not happy about oil and gas development out there 
And so allegedly he started sabotaging natural gas wells and pipelines. Uh, and during the whole legal process against uh, Ludwig, it came out that the RCMP actually bombed a uh, Alberta Energy Corporation facility with the knowledge and permission of the Alberta Energy Corporation, who just wanted to get rid of this guy, right? Because he's sitting on a bunch of land that they want. They want to operate wells without this guy potentially running around sabotaging them or, you know, reporting on them or whatever. Um, so they have the RCMP come in and conduct their own terrorist bombing on their facility. Um, and the, the Crown admitted that that's what happened uh, during one of Ivo Ludwig's uh, um, bail hearings. So we know they've done it. It's very, uh, you know, shocking to think about, but clearly it's not beyond the pale for the RCMP. Yeah. Another one that uh, is sort of a, it's it's like an educative kind of thing, you know, like when you when you hear about it, you're kind of like, oh man, that's not good, is that um, there was uh, the OPP in, I think it was the OPP in uh, Ontario, they were, they tried to infiltrate far right movements as they were developed, but they took too much of a leaning role, it kind of looks like in a lot of ways, like basically what they did is they tried to federate some of the different far right nationalist, white nationalist groups into one group called the Heritage Front. And um, one of the interesting things, you know, the scary things is that it was a informant slash agent kind of thing that uh, took a leading role in helping push that along kind of thing. And that seems a lot different than passively, you know, he was one of the leaders of the group kind of thing, like one of the top ones. And um, that seems like it's a bit of uh, overstep. You know, you wouldn't want someone of that character unless unless you're going to go whole hog reactionary kind of thing right like unless unless you're going to be like where it's like the you know the czarist cops or something like that and you know you're you're uh you know infiltrating all the way to the top if you can but yeah the that seemed like a big overstep too and, and uh it seemed to fit well this idea that you know people that would say that they're soft on the far right because they're willing to infiltrate to that level and stuff so yeah there's also been, you know, keeping with the theme of, of the RCMP getting played as well, there's also been a number of instances where the RCMP has had people under their witness protection programs um, or made them informants or agents even who were just completely rolling them the entire time. Um, and so we know that, for instance, there's this guy, uh, Richard Young, who uh, in uh, he was basically like a bogus informant. He told the RCMP he had uh, information on this Chinese heroin dealer uh, in Vancouver um, and just made up like total nonsense, like obvious nonsense. His his story changed during his interviews with the RCMP and this kind of stuff. Um, but they ended up paying off $130,000 of his debt. Um, they put him in the witness protection program. So he had like round the clock RCMP detail and relocated him. And he committed a murder while he was under the witness protection program. And they, they refused to talk about it. They just covered up the entire thing. And they say, we don't have to talk about crimes that were committed under the witness protection program. So, you know, is it possible that 
you know, Gabriel Wartman was just a crazy dude who ended up like lying himself into the employee of the RCMP. And they thought like, maybe they thought they were going to do a big bust because Wartman was caught with guns smuggled from the U.S., they were not legal guns, which is what makes the order and council banning legal guns so strange. But the uh, illegal guns that he had may have been destined, let's say, for the Hells Angels, who are a big presence in Halifax, where Wartman is based. So could he have lied himself? Uh, he's apparently a fan of the police. Could he have lied himself into a situation where he said, oh, yeah, I have Hells Angels contra- uh, contacts. I can... Uh, set up a big bust for you where I'm selling them ARs and you're going to look great. You're going to have a reason to ban the guns you don't like, all this kind of stuff. And it just turns out he's a nut and wants to murder people. Could that have happened? Yeah, absolutely. You know, like this stuff has happened before. The RCMP is that incompetent. Um, And they do cover all of this stuff up and they refuse to talk about these things to this day. Yeah, yeah, that's one of those things where it's like if they're this incompetent, then something needs to be done about that. But because nothing gets, you know, there's no reform to kind of improve their ability to like do their ostensible job, then it gets a little bit fishy. Like, why are these guys sticking around like this, you know? Yeah, and it's the the consistent pattern with the RCMP is every time there's a scandal or every time the investigation gets derailed, it goes wrong, whatever, the people who are responsible are promoted, right? So (laughs) you, every single time. And, you know, you see this with, with big issues too. I mean, there's, um, you know, the Sidewinder report in the late nineties, which was a joint RCMP CSIS investigation into goings on at the Canadian embassy in Hong Kong, where an embassy employee observed basically what we all know is happening now, uh, or has been happening for some time in the West coast of, uh, Canada, which is the laundering of money by corrupt, um, Chinese officials in conjunction with the triads, you know, drug smuggling, human smuggling, all that kind of stuff. The Sidewinder report identified that stuff in 99 and uh, was completely deep-sixed by the RCMP upper management. All the people uh, who were involved with the management were promoted and the, you know, hapless constable who was assigned to investigate was shuffled off to some punishment appointment every single time. It's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. I'm getting this picture of the Mounties as like, you know, like Bad Santa. Uh, I'm, I'm kind of picturing <laughs> Bad Santa, except it's in the Mountie uniform, you know? Yeah, yeah. It's, it's not a horrible comparison in some ways. I mean, if, if you want to talk about Bad Santa, I mean, the RCMPs are notorious for their womanizing. To the point where there was a few years ago a twenty million dollar settlement paid out to the to all female members of the RCMP. All female <laughs> members of the RCMP are eligible for this settlement because sexual abuse and harassment were so prevalent in the RCMP. Like it was, it was virtually uh, ubiquitous um, among female employees at um, like A Division is the national headquarters of. Uh, the RCMP for a division female employees of the RCMP to have slept with the commissioner, like widely known that that's what was going on. So this is, this is now like the, what we have to do. We have $20 million to all female employees. So yeah, bad Santa, maybe not a bad comparison. Yeah. And I think that, 
um, what you said earlier, Mike, about the sort of strange relationship it has with corruption in or federal politics, where sometimes it acts if it's sort of pushed to by some factor, but otherwise yeah. it will just let whatever is happening in Canada and certain regions just persist and not get involved. And that is true also for uh, the police in Quebec until very, you know, in the last 10 years or so where they were pushed uh, in a lot of ways to 20 years, I guess, now. But like, you know, they, they've sort of moved against very, very long-standing arrangements in the construction industry and other industries where, I mean, like they were rigging elections, basically. That's just what, that that's what was happening. They were, you know, there was giant systems of graft where, you know, any sort of construction contract that went through the government, a certain percentage would go to, you know, the mafia, a certain percentage would go to, it would be expected of like the unions for certain things. And then some of it would get to the political system uh, very directly in a, in, in a known way through the handlers and all that kind of thing. And uh, it's funny because that was that was comparable to, you know, that we we've we've had this kind of rollout since about 2000 or so, 2003, 2004. It became clear to, that at the federal and provincial level that the liberals and other parties, but mostly, you know, the liberals were deeply involved in these sorts of things like basically fake jobs for people just to give them money to pay to pay them to be organizers for the liberals and stuff. And um it's sort of astonishing, like that that level of obvious corruption. It's not like some, in you know, Marxist way where you have to be like, well, the NGOs are actually the petty bourgeoisie and all that stuff. It's just directly, no, no, no. They got like ad contracts and used it to hire organizers or something like that. So yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's very direct, actually. Yeah. Um, w- one of the interesting things that uh, Paul Polango alleges um, in his book um, "Dispersing the Fog" is about the commissioner through the early two thousands, Zaccardelli, uh, who apparently he Chrétien originally appointed him commissioner because his wife Aileen kind of took a, a shine to him because they both spoke Italian and French and had this kind of shared outlook, I guess. Uh, but allegedly, so one of the interesting things that Zaccardelli does, as soon as he's appointed, he turns around and threatens to reopen the Sidewinder investigation. And Chrétien freaks out and has him come into his office, right? And says, look, like the Sidewinder investigation is closed, right? <laughs> you know, you can't go anywhere near this because basically what they were getting at was, you know, uh, Canadian-Chinese business relations are very, very deep. I mean, you know, one of the first Western businessmen invited to China by uh, Deng in the, you know, opening of Chinese markets is Paul Desmarais, who is, you know, one of the richest Canadians and who has connections to all of the prime ministers basically of the 90s, like they either worked for him or they're involved with his companies. And so there's this very strong kind of odor of corruption around some of these figures. And the Canadian political establishment did not want any part of that. They did not want any of this. So it's very strange that Zaccardelli threatens to reopen this whole can of worms. So Cretien says, no, don't do it. This investigation is closed. And apparently what happens is Zaccardelli strikes a deal with Chrétien where he's basically like, I will not investigate Adscam and your Shawinigan dealings. So he, he had these really kind of petty corruption 
scandals swirling around his involvement with like a golf course and a hotel in Quebec. And Zaccardelli says, I'm not going to investigate these as long as you don't get involved with RCMP affairs. And after that, the RCMP just goes nuts on like the musical ride and like Zaccardelli's buying like $40,000 gold sinks for his uh, like official bathroom. And, and shortly thereafter, the RCMP pension fund is being raided. So the A division headquarters has all of these guys who ultimately uh, were forced to resign because um, they had been embezzling from the pension fund. And the Zaccardelli's later, he, he does this very strange thing in, in 2000, uh, I believe 2005, uh, during the election. So Harper is running, uh, against Paul Martin and Zaccardelli announces right before the election that this reminds me of Mueller in the, the election uh, with Trump. He announces that I believe it was Ralph Goodale, who's a finance minister under Martin is under investigation for, you know, like ad scam corruption stuff. And that throws the election to uh, Harper, right? So he's he's also getting in, involved in the highest levels uh, of Canadian politics in this kind of like kingmaker role. It's very strange, very strange. So one uh, one interesting thing, um, just to mention as we wrap up, maybe as a little bit of a, a shout out to our uh, French connection in the Discord, uh, Loic, who um, twigged my memory um, about Le Cercle, which is the um, right-wing kind of uh, propaganda do, Opus Dei, connected, if you want, like, consulting group of, of reactionary aristocrats. Yeah, um, shadowy cabal is how I would Yeah, <laughs> Yeah, so we actually have a, a connection there as well to talk about. Um, so uh, one name that will be familiar to uh, Canadians uh, and Germans alike is Karl-Heinz Schreiber. So Schreiber was a uh, German financier who was working on behalf of the Bavarian uh, premier Franz Josef Strauss, who was a Le Cercle member uh, and who was very concerned to have friendly governments in NATO countries. So by which he means that they can sell arms to th those countries. And Le Cercle was very concerned, apparently, with the project of European integration. Um, one of the big kind of flagship efforts uh, in that vein was uh, the company Airbus. And so we have the Airbus scandal in Canada, where this guy, Karl-Heinz Schreiber, um, this is uh, detailed at length in uh, Polango's book um, for people who, who really want the nitty-gritty, but he moves to Canada basically with the mission of taking over the Canadian government. And he goes out west and starts looking for conservative Canadian politicians to invest in. And ultimately, he finds Brian Mulroney. And one of the things that is almost never uh, remembered um, here in Canada is that Karl-Heinz Schreiber in his testimony um, to Parliament uh, described at length funding Brian Mulroney's leadership campaign against, I believe it was Joe Clark. Uh, and it, that campaign is how Brian Mulroney comes to lead the Conservative Party and ultimately to become Prime Minister of Canada, 
where he takes $300,000 in cash from Carline Schreiber to make a big Airbus uh, purchase happen. So this is, this is kind of an interesting connection here for us when we're talking about how these um, sort of deep state actors, these rings, influence rings, actually work. Well, sometimes, and particularly in the Canadian context, it's really, you know, the prime minister walking into a hotel and picking up a bag full of cash from a guy. And <laughs> yeah, that's, that was it. And that was how the Canadian government was, was purchased. And, uh, you know, just to be clear, Brian Mulroney filed a tax receipt for the money that he took and could not explain where the money came from. So we know he took the money. We know he took the money and we know uh, that it went into his bank account. And it's pretty clear that this happened. He picked up a bag That's full hilarious. of cash. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, this is, this is uh, one, one way in which uh, we can see this happening. And I, I think we would be fools not to think that this happens pretty routinely um, in our country. Well, I think a good way of uh, maybe underlining that point is to say, so Brian Mulroney, his daughter is now, I think, minister of what, something? She's a minister, at least, in the government in Ontario. Doug Ford, our premier, is the son of a politician. Our prime minister, Justin Trudeau, is the son of Pierre Trudeau. These kind of things, just you can go down the list, and half of the people are either you know, bureaucrat journalist types who uh, are sort of their own sort of sinecures, and the other half are people who just directly walked in these offices from, you know, their uh, political lifetime connections. So, yeah. And um, and keep an eye on, on Peter McKay with regard to this whole thing. Peter McKay comes from a Nova Scotian political dynasty. His father, Elmer McKay, was the one who uh, evacuated Karl Heinz Schreiber from Switzerland and moved him to the McKay residence in Nova Scotia, where he had hid out from uh, German extradition. And Peter McKay was, was in front of Parliament. Uh, routinely saying, stop this investigation, you know, Karl Heinz Schreiber's a liar, like Mulroney hasn't done anything wrong, he's already been cleared, you know, all this kind of stuff. And of course, the, the RCMP, this is um, after the, the McDonald Commission report, basically, like, the, the RCMP literally cleared Mulroney, stopped their investigation into Mulroney before investigating, or before interviewing Schreiber. They had no testimony from the primary suspect, uh, suspected of bribing Brian Mulroney before they said, we will not investigate you, Brian Mulroney. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, I mean, and, and so Peter McKay is, he's running to be the leader of the conservatives right now. And uh, he, right. he is one of the top two candidates right now for that position. He's probably, I would guess, favored, but um, pretty close. And uh, that's the kind of culture that we have here. It's very, it, it reminds me a lot of like, you know, the Clintons and the Bushes and stuff, but uh, I would say it's even much more widespread in Canada in that respect because, uh, you know, you it's just a, they they feel like because they're both cheating against each other, it's uh, it's okay at some level, but uh, it it produces a lot of problems because, uh, you know, I mean, if you're trying to build a country out of all these disparate sort of conflicting regions and 
with, you know, different types of people and different, you know, and then uh, you've got these kind of people running the show. It's, it's a, you know, it's one of those things where you go, oh man, things could be so much better if we just, <laughs> I don't know, somehow fixed this. Yeah. Yeah. You need a much, like a much more solid political structure, like an emirate that's uh, yeah. you know, founded on the basis of two <laughs> great religions, something sure. along those lines. Yeah. Uh, all right. Should we get into questions? Is there anything we want to say, before, uh, you know, in uh, conclusion here before we do that? No, uh, let's do questions. No, questions? All right. Okay. So we didn't get any questions specifically for this episode. I didn't put out a tweet about it or anything. So these are just going to be some grab bag questions. Um, I guess we can do some that sort of follow up from our Albania episode last week. Uh, these were sort of sent before that but i noticed them later on and i thought they were kind of fun so this one says please rank the south slavs from best to worst this should go without saying but please do not include albanians (laughs) yeah albanians are illyrians so they're right uh, that's something we learned yeah 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 Yeah. they're not they're not slavs um okay so we got what greeks macedonians are greeks slavs they're not slavs are they are they? I thought it no, was they're, considered. They're just Greeks. They're, they're just Greek. Greeks. Okay. They're Balkans. I mean, they're they're Turks. Yeah, right. But, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, okay, so we're just talking about like the Yugoslav, ex-Yugoslav. I think I think it also includes Bulgaria. Bulgaria. Yeah. Um, and uh, not Romania. Romania. I don't think they're considered Slavs. They're called. They're like their own Latin weird thing. Yeah. Or they are Slavs, but their language isn't. I don't know. We'll um, let them do their thing on the yeah, side, I think. so, okay. I, I'm going to put Bosnians at the top. Wow. I got to represent for the Bosnians. Sure. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, my, my answer for this would be that Serbia is number one and wow. that uh, that is the entire list of Soviets. <laughs> 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 okay, that's, uh, that's one take. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to put Serbs right at the bottom. <laughs> okay okay <laughs> uh, yeah so we got bosnians at the top serbs at the bottom and then i can fill it in with i'll go bosnian slovene croatian are, i don't think slovenes are considered slavs they don't consider themselves slavs i don't think all right you know what this this is a little too complicated for me. <laughs> i don't know but uh um and plus i mean you don't like tupac He's alive in Serbia. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I've heard. I don't know. You want to help me out here, Mikey? Got any input on this? I'm not getting involved in this. No. No. Okay. Well, I'll just leave it at that. Whatever. Bosnia's at the top, everything else in the middle, and Serbs at the bottom. That's my list. Okay. Sl- Slovenes do consider themselves Slavs, I guess. Yeah, I thought so. Like Zizek's Slovene, and I mean, look at that guy. Yeah. I guess because they, uh, they're more of those, like, they think of themselves as the hoity-toity ones kind of thing. Yeah. They're like the ones that, you know, did better off out of the whole thing. So Imagine like themselves. having a connection to Italy and claiming that as your like hoity-toity status. Like that's your, you know. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay. So, oh, Molde- Moldova, we didn't. No, no, no. So Macedonia, North Macedonia, we didn't discuss, I don't think. We don't so. discuss North Macedonia okay. on this podcast. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, do you guys have a favorite brand of chocolate that you like? <laughs> favorite brand of chocolate? I, I have like a sort of uh, nostalgic connection to uh, Fatser chocolate 
which is like a Finnish brand. They do these like mint chocolate things. And I don't really even like mint chocolate normally, but it's just like something I always had when I visited Finland as a kid and stuff. So that's sort of like has a warm spot in my heart. Sure. Um, yeah, for me, I, I really like uh, like white chocolate. Like the Ugh. I would get like certain bars of it. And I would eat it all the time. I also, uh, this is just a related thing is that, you know, I'm someone that can do something for like 10 years and then realize it's terrible for me kind of thing. Like it doesn't, <laughs> I have a very, very slow, like uh, learning, like circle, whatever, you know, like reflection cycle, whatever, um, where I go, uh, I realized in the last few years that like anytime I have sugar, I get like headaches and I feel like very sick and stuff. And, um, and like I, so I got tested for diabetes and stuff. And they said it's not that yet. I mean, you know, I'm I'm on I'm on the path to that if I don't smarten up. But like, I, you know, right now it's not anything like that. So it's just something to do with the sugar, or whatever. It just makes me throws everything out of whack. I used to go to the uh, grocery store and get like this in Quebec. They had these little uh, like little cubes of maple fudge, right? And they had like a pack and the pack would have like, I don't know, like 20 or 24 of these little cubes of maple fudge. And I think it costs like five bucks or something. Um, and it's made, you know, like Quebec is obviously famous for its maple fudge and all that maple sugar, maple everything. And um, so all that is, is just maple and sugar. That's it, right? Just, just cubes of sugar. <laughs> I would go there and maybe like once a month or once a week or something like that, I would get this thing. And just eat it all, just like that. Just be like, mmm. And the thing is, too, is that I had this idea that uh, I thought that, you know, I heard that, like, nutrition and all that was just calories in, calories out kind of thing. So I didn't care about nutrients at all. So I would be like, oh, man, I got to eat something today. Today. And then I'd be like, okay, it's time to finish off one of these uh, sugar <laughs> packets or something like that. <laughs> and then I would feel horrible for, like, a week or something, right? And then Or, like, for a few days, whatever. And uh, no, no mental connection in my mind. I'd be like, oh man, <laughs> why would, why would that happen? So I don't know. So now I feel kind of bad that it's, but the thing is now I've gotten to the point where if I see something that's sugary, I look at it and it immediately causes me to like, you know, feel like I'm going to throw up or something. It's like, I've gotten the clockwork orange treatment on it now. So <laughs> um, I don't know. I, I, I worked through that, I guess that way, but you know, that's not like a good long-term health plan. You don't want to be like. 60 and be like oh i figured out that this is the thing that makes me sick or something like that kind of thing you know like <laughs> yeah, yeah i don't know so yeah you know how they say like some people are born in the wrong time and what they mean is like that they kind of belong to like a time in the past yeah. i think that's true for you but it's like you belong like 150 years in the future when we all just eat like yeah. nutrition cubes and stuff like <laughs> sure, that like sure. <laughs> I, I i used to feel like that a lot when i was a kid i i, I felt like uh i felt like i was uh, like plopped into the distant past and you know doctors are like oh you have cancer time to blast you with radiation or whatever i'd be like what the <laughs> hell are they doing to people or whatever i don't know <laughs> can't they just like star trek it or whatever i don't know so yeah yeah um all right are you obliged to get circumcised uh i imagine this is a islam question because i I would say no if, if it's not any religious injunction. And then also, it's actually also a no in Islam. Uh, it's it's uh, encouraged, but it's not obligatory. 
Oh, I didn't know it was encouraged. Is is there some? Is, um, it, yeah, like, I think it's considered the... part of the fitra, right? It's okay, one of those. Okay. The, the, there was uh, there's a hadith where the prophet lists a few things as part of the fitra, and it's like trimming your nails and and stuff like that, and circumcision is part of that. Okay, okay. And and then I think it's also because of like the, you know, because of the Jewish tradition to do it. I think it's also understood as like kind of a continuation of that as well. Yeah. It used to be a much more of a, like the Ottomans used to have uh, big parades. One of their biggest celebrations was when like a uh, a son of the sultan got circumcised. It would be like a week-long celebration. Oh, yeah. Uh, it was like a really big deal, kind of interesting yeah. thing. That was obviously one of the first debates in Christianity, right? Like in the, mm. in the first few months, basically, or the first few years. Uh, once they started sending uh, people to Greece and stuff, uh, there was like, you know, some people in the church uh, or in the, you know, the followers of Jesus, whatever, were like, okay, well, t time for you guys to get circumcised. And they were like, uh, uh, you know, like, <laughs> whoa, <laughs> hold on. There. You didn't mention that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So uh, they had to kind of work through some of the theological implications of that kind of thing and of becoming a world religion instead of just uh like you know instead of being explicitly some sort of supersessionist cult or something you just get them snipped it's not a big deal yeah. um okay hey guys i really enjoy the show i hope this isn't too presumptuous or anything but your conversation last week okay so this is Quite an old question, but your conversation last week about Jacques Maritain reminded me of a couple scholars I've been reading a lot lately, and I was wondering if you know them. Tom, I'm curious if you've ever read anything by Ibrahim Musa. He seems to take a lot of inspiration from Alama Iqbal, and he writes a lot about being true to Islam in a secular society in a really interesting way. Khalid Abu El Fadl is another really interesting scholar who writes about similar stuff. I was also wondering if either of you have read any Bill Connolly. He's sort of a post-liberal guy who's trying to formulate a post-liberal theory of pluralism. If I, if either of you know anything about any of them, I'd be super interested in hearing your thoughts. Okay, so I'll just go down the line here. So I haven't read anything by Ibrahim Musa. I am familiar with, I, I think he has a book about like democracy and Islam and secularism, you know, something about that. Uh, it, it, it is on my list of like to read and I'm kind of familiar with the arguments or at least like the sensibility that he takes to it. And it seems like something that I would appreciate, but I don't know the specifics on that. Uh, I do like Alama Iqbal. I have read a few of his books, uh, Reconstruction in Islam or something like that. Reconstruction of Islamic thought, something along those lines. That was a really interesting book. It's a bit dated, but uh, I think, um, yeah, I, I appreciate his writing a lot. And uh, Khaled Abu El Fadl, I, I do like a lot. I don't always agree with everything he says, but I I do appreciate his uh, his sensibility towards what modern scholarship should look like and, and the idea of um, moving away from just a, a very kind of like rigid, you know, just reference to texts and more of like a consideration of local cult, uh, culture and custom especially in like a north american context and western society and stuff like that so yeah i i do appreciate him quite a bit and bill connolly i do not know i don't know bill connolly either Sorry. okay you have any thoughts on any of those uh, muslim guys mike no 
No, I don't think you've uh, read enough to say. I spent my day sending a question that would reach the character limit just with the word penis, and you guys don't even mention it. What kind of trolls are you people? Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, not even going to dignify that with a response. This is a weird question. This was sent in February, so this might, might be a little bit dated now, but I've been evicted three days ago have been selling all my shit to pay debts and have enough to eat and use the Wi-Fi at local Starbucks before having to, due to desperation, sell my iPhone as well. I do have a friend who is offering me a job, though. I live in Australia, and he's Japanese and is offering me a job and an apartment in Japan. The catch is, even though he's offering me obscene amounts of money, the job involves filming women at Japanese Olsen's, editing the footage, and selling it at obscene prices for porn sites. Oh, it is highly immoral, if not really illegal, to do that in Japan, so no chance of doing time. Oh, so it's not illegal in Japan, so there's no chance of doing time. Yeah, I, I, I wouldn't test that theory as a foreigner. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah uh, so he says, should I take it? No. Yeah, I don't think so. <laughs> Hopefully they did not. So. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so if you're listening to this and you're doing it, we do not approve. Go home. Yeah, find a new job. <laughs> Sorry for your, you know, eviction and all that stuff. Yeah. Sorry we didn't get to it sooner and save you from this mess you've gotten yourself into, but there's always tomorrow. Yeah. Who would you say is the Dr. House of Saintum, Saintdom and the Sahaba? Uh, hmm. So Dr. House is kind of like the cranky knows how to solve everyone's problems, but you can't fix himself sort of a thing. I can't think of a Sahabi that sort of fits that. Most saints were pretty joyful people or the other end where they just were, you know, crying and in tears of, you know, penance and all that. Not, not a lot of smug. It's kind of a, I don't know. Smug and virtue really shouldn't go hand in hand a lot of the time, so I'm not sure. Yeah, I think maybe the Dr. House, like, personality is maybe inherently, like, satanic or something. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. There are lots of stories about kind of, like, the the righteous, like, kind of, like, trolling people by making incisive observations into their state and that kind of stuff, like. I remember Khalid shared uh, one that was about a guy whose wife uh, had, she had like deeply in her heart ingrained this desire for him. He was like a black guy and his wife was Arab and she wanted him to be lighter skinned and he like perceived this in her and uh, told her, you know, like by Allah, when I die, you will marry a man who's like even blacker than I and then she that ends up happening like this is his like righteous curse on her and like she she doesn't uh she ends up with like a crick in her neck and like can't straighten her head until she marries this guy who was his um colleague or something who's like even darker colored and so she has to get over her racism before stuff like that that's the only thing that comes i didn't know the snow bunny crisis had such Uh, All right. Hello, this is famous Israeli actor Gal Gadot. 
I would like to address the weird potato-shaped man who has been sending me love letters. I love your style and sense of humor, but I found your old posts where you said you wanted to nuke Tel Aviv, and I'm afraid we could never be together. Yeah, no, I never wanted to be with Gal Gadot in the first place. I just uh, consider her a potentially good friend, and um, I just respect her for her joy of life. I think that she brings, she kind of reminds me of the simplicity of uh, someone like Audrey Hepburn in the past, and uh, I'm glad to see her succeed, and uh, I am feeling bad for her that her landmark uh, career move, Wonder Woman 1984, is now going to be uh, probably slammed into the grounds of reality because of COVID um, when it finally comes out in August, I guess, so... Uh, you know, I don't know. Just because uh, I'm friends with someone potentially on the internet doesn't mean that I'm going to marry them. It just means that, you know, I can, we can just hang out. Well, I think threatening to or calling for the nuking of her hometown is probably a bad. You know, I don't think she's going to appreciate that, whether it's a romantic thing or or just friendly. Well, I mean. If it comes down to it, nuking fake Israel is the, the you know, it's got to happen. I did yeah, no disagreements for me. <laughs> so, I'm just saying. Yeah, so I don't know. I I feel like if I sat down with her and chatted with her for about twenty minutes, maybe had like some sort of PowerPoint slide presentation, she might be like, okay, well, you know, Tel Aviv is my hometown, but it's gotta nuking, go. Yeah, nuking fake Israel is the thing we have to do. So yeah. Yeah, convince her she's meant to wander the earth like her ancestors. Yeah. Um, all right, so I'll move ahead here and get some more recent questions. Went to a protest at the high school in the Lily White suburb I live in. I'm not sure I did any, anything by being there, and the whole protest felt like some sort of psyop. But I felt good being there, and I think it made some people feel good to have more bodies seen there. I think this goes back to your guys' understanding of charity, that it's good for the soul. Would argue protest and solidarity can be similar. What are your thoughts? Yeah, I I think that's yeah I'd agree with you. That makes sense. Yeah, I always uh, I don't know. I guess because you get the economics degree, they they beat marginalism into your head. I always think like if there's a thousand people there, where the thousand and one person matter, it's like I'm not actually creating the crowd by going, so it doesn't really matter if I go or not. So, uh, but you know, it does sound like you had a positive experience and. Other people are probably happy about that, so it worked out. I don't know. Yep. Um, fascist or not, Julius Evola was a good poet, and that's all you can judge him for. I don't have a question. Okay, well, then you're not getting an answer either. <laughs> uh, have you encountered self-aware and self-critical right-wingers before? How do you deprogram someone who genuinely understands left-wing arguments but just doesn't care? Well, I I think I understand left-wing arguments and I don't just don't care. So. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I, I think it's one of those things where, I don't know, I, I, I am pretty far away from caring about deprogramming people. I don't know. I, I, even now when I like see people, I, I feel like I could be good friends with like a Scientologist now even or something like I don't even care you know like at that level of uh who care about that no beef kind of thing like just you know like what's the what's what's the big deal you're not I don't know did I think once you start kind of thinking of yourself as some sort of like uh 
on that quest that everyone around you has to, you're like some sort of virus reprogramming people or something kind of thing. You have to get them all in line. I don't know. That's a, gets a weird places at least. I'm not even going to say it's bad. It's just, it's just, just weird. Yeah. It yeah. can be a little culty. Like you have the truth and everyone has to see it or they're damned, yeah. you know? Yeah. I feel like to, you know, to underline that too, is that like, if you look at like the news in the last few months, no one has any idea what's going on. Like most people don't, <laughs> yeah. you know? <laughs> like, yeah, that should be the takeaway. <laughs> so if someone's like, you know, we should plan the economy in a certain way or something, you can be like, okay, well, sure. I don't know. Yeah, get to Go it. ahead. <laughs> but like, <laughs> but not like, you know, actually, you know, I don't know. I can't, I can't, yeah, I don't have the energy for that anymore. I'm moving on to other things. Yeah, I would say I've definitely encountered self-aware and self-critical right-wingers before. I mean, it depends how you define the word right-winger, you know, and all that kind of thing. But, you know, people who have kind of a right-wing perspective. Obviously, everyone who has some kind of strong political, so you know, so, some kind of ideology like that where they you can clearly define them as like left-wing, right-wing, they're going to have blind spots. So, yeah, I don't know if that means that they're not self-critical if just because they have some kind of like political perspective or whatever. But yeah, you know, I'd say I've encountered those sorts of people. Sure. For me, this is kind of related to apologetics too, right? Like if you if you come to someone with your vision of the truth, they can tell if it's motivated by genuine concern for their well-being or by your egoistic desire to be correct. I mean, they don't, they don't, whether or not they understand the the argument, they can usually tell what your motivation is. And you're not going to get anywhere by, you know, thinking of them as a receptacle for correct opinions or whatever. Yeah, like the, the programming frame is the wrong one. You have to cultivate genuine concern for this person and try to improve their life. And they, they might listen to you then. Yeah. yeah. You also have to be sort of like open to being wrong. Like you have yeah. to find the points of contention. Like if you're actually interested in hashing out some kind of debate, you can't come at it like I'm right. I have to convince this person that the way I see things is right. It needs to be more like, okay, we disagree about this. Let's lay our cards on the table and let's see who's actually right. And you have to genuinely be open to being wrong about something. And yeah. if you do that, that'll open the other person up. And if you're, hundred percent confident that you have the truth then you know fine then you shouldn't really have that sort of mentality that oh i need to like convince this person and deprogram them you can just be like well let's examine this and let's see what we come up with you know and then the truth will come out someone online observed recently that you know one of the the weirdest and most depressing kind of trends right now is this the general acceptance of the idea that, like, to be friends with someone, you have to agree with them on, like, you know, either some everything or some subset of questions, right? You have to do a purity test, or otherwise, like, you can't you can't be friends with them. Like, you can't continue to have a relationship with that person. Um, I think it's that's that's hugely counterproductive. If like you actually are on the truth, then you need to be available to those people. But yeah, that's that's a good point. All right, so to wrap up the episode here, we'll we'll finish with this uh, comment. Um, meds not taken. Voices in the wall heard. Mossad blamed. Yep, it's you can't win time. 
So. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. Yeah, That's well, right. Hope you guys enjoyed this episode. Uh, I know I learned a lot about the uh, quirky world of the 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 bad mounties. Thanks for coming on again, Mike. Yeah, thanks, Mike. It's my pleasure. Okay, guys, so uh, if you enjoy this episode and you'd like a second episode of You Can't Win Every Week, you can subscribe to our Patreon, and you will also, in addition to that, get access to our Discord, where you can hang out with us and our community. Thanks for listening.